I'm Interested with Mike Greenberg is presented by ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Welcome to I'm Interested. This is Mike Greenberg, and I am delighted to have you with me here today as we continue this podcast. And I want to mention quickly before I bring in the Mad Dog, we are two weeks away from finishing up this season. We are going to do 10 interviews this fall. And I want to ask you if you enjoy this sort of long form interview podcast. This is this is sort of the way that I have envisioned doing this. And we can do a lot of different themes. My first season, we just did people from varying walks of life. And this season, we have done all these interviews with people who are the, the legendary chroniclers and voices of the world of sports. We could envision another season and we could do another uh, group of long form interviews if you are interested in those. So what I would ask you to do, if you like these sort of long-form interviews and you'd like to see us continue, there's a very simple way to send that message to me, and that is if you would subscribe to this podcast and you would leave us a rating and a review. And that would be your way of letting us know, letting me know, Greeny, we like these. I I like hearing these long-form conversational interviews. It's what I enjoy doing, but there's no reason for me to do it if you don't have an interest in hearing it. So, again, that's what you could do for me if you would like to see another season of this podcast. Then just subscribe to the podcast. I'm interested. Leave us a rating and a review and let us know that you would like to see this and hear this continue. And if you want us to do it, then we most certainly will continue to do it after the new year. In the meantime, my guest today is Chris Russo, legendarily known as the Mad Dog, now of Mad Dog Sports Radio on Sirius XM. And sort of the, I've, I've always referred to him as the godfather of two-man sports talk. You know, Mike and the Mad Dog, what they did at WFAN, among other things, um, spawned an entire genre that has created an awfully good life for me. Um, and I don't know that there would have been a Mike and Mike if there hadn't been a Mike and the Mad Dog. So um, I'm really looking forward to talking to Chris about all the different elements of his career, about the impact he feels he's had on the industry, and most importantly, on all of the great sports that he's had the ability to cover over the last 30-plus years. So Chris Russo is coming your way in just a moment, but before we get to that conversation, I will remind you, and with that, the table is set. Here comes the Mad Dog in 3, 2, 1. There seems to me to be no way that I could introduce Chris Mad Dog Russo outside of doing my extremely and admittedly terrible imitation of him, but for as long as I can remember... Uh, people like me have been saying, good afternoon, everybody. How are you today? Uh, the Chris Russo is with me here on the I'm Interested podcast. And I will tell you, Chris, as I welcome you to this, that I open my television show by saying exactly that. I have been doing my uh, open on my television show and on the old show, Mike and Mike, as sort of an homage to you from the day we started. So I have been well, doing my own I know own the little... times that you've had me on Get Up, you yeah. have said that. And so the, and <laughs> good afternoon, everyone. That has been part of your staple recently. So <laughs> it, is much, it is much appreciated, and it's good to be on here with your burgeoning career. You've been all over the place now in podcast land, so away we go. How you doing, okay? I'm, I'm great, and, and it is great to hear you and to hear your incredibly distinctive voice, and, and I want to start with that. Now, look, we did a 30 for 30 about it, so it's no mystery that, that everyone got a chance, including myself, to talk about how influential you were, and, and, and it are, but, but obviously starting it all kind of as you do. I, I've always referred to you and Mike as the godfathers of this 
a little genre that we have and that I have made a wonderful living doing for the last 20 plus years. So I just wonder when, you know, I'm sort of cutting to the end and then we'll sort of work our way through some of the specifics. But when you hear people say that, when you hear people who've been around as long as I have now saying that you guys were the inspiration, you guys started it all. Like, I know you've heard it a million times. What does it mean to you? Well, I think the thing that you like best of all, it's a duet sports talk. Remember, before Mike and I started, most of the sports talk show hosts were singular. Uh, and all Eddie Andelman in Boston, um, Pete in Cleveland, Pete Franklin, Eskin down in Philly. There wasn't a two-man sports show in the mid-'80s. Mo- you know, even Art Rust in New York, Sterling earlier than that at WMCA. They always did the shows singularly. So when Mike and I began... It was the two-man feature. So from that standpoint, that's what you take out of it. Not that we were the, not that I'm the first or he's the first to do sports talk. It's the fact that we were the first to do it together, and to convince sports talk stations, whether they be at IP in Philadelphia, which kind of followed FAN in New York, that you could put afternoon sports talk on. You know, middle of the afternoon, not at night. Most of the shows in the old days. Mike, we're on after the, you know, 6 o'clock, 6 to 10 at night, something along those lines. They weren't always on 2 to 6 or 1 to 6.30 or 3 to 7. And Mike and I kind of showed that you could do that kind of format in the middle of the day and have an all-sports talk radio station. So I take more out of it from the standpoint of the two-man team than I do of the individual sports talk. And now that you see, you know, whether it's TV, uh, whether it's the radio, most of your – you know, it's obviously at ESPN, look at Stephen A. with first Bayless and now Max. Most of your stuff, uh, Bayless out there with um, Shannon Sharp, uh, most of your stuff is with the two guys talking more so than the one guy. So I think that's what I take out of it, that Mike and, Mike and I were able to uh, figure out a way, two big egos, uh, not used to working with, a, with another component, that we were able to manufacture a five-and-a-half-hour ham and egg, it, as the golf term would explain, uh, a five-and-a-half-hour show Monday through Friday for 19 years and give each room but also be a show, a together show. And I think that's what I take out of it more than anything else, the fact that it was two guys talking sports, not just the one. That's exactly right. And look, the success of WFAN is also not only WIP in Philadelphia, but I can tell you that where I got my start was in Chicago. And I was an original on, on WSCR, the score. It was on a different frequency than it is now. But you'll remember that because we used to have you on. I was a producer when it started. And I produced, among others, for a guy named Mike North, who was sort sure. of the, the, the Chicago version of Mad Dog. Everyone was looking yeah, for was. the Chicago yeah. version of Mad Dog. And he was that. And we had enormous success there. And we would have you on regularly. So, I mean, you, you guys... By your success, the station in general, but you guys in particular, you you spawned just an entire genre. All these sports talk radio stations that are all over the country now exist because you guys made it. Well, you had Jiggets there too with North too, yep. right? I mean, Correct. you had uh, Dan Jiggets did the show right. with Mike. Is yes. uh, I think what you, um, I, I think that what sports talk, what FAN achieved, is they proved that you can do an all sports. You know, we had Imus, so but. For the most part, sports all day, they proved you can do that and be successful in your marketplace. Up until that point, you know, nobody ever thought that you could basically have one message and eliminate half your audience, for the most part, being women. I mean, I know I didn't think it would be able to. I didn't think FAN would be successful because I just did not think you could survive if half your clientele was not going to be necessarily into it. And that obviously would be females. How many females 
necessarily going to sit there and listen to sports talk all day. That's a, you know, that's basically sort of men-oriented. And I didn't know if FAN could survive by doing that. And I was dead wrong. They could. Now, I miss, again, was huge because it gave us a morning show, and that's important. But a lot of other towns, as you know, did a lot of sports talk in the morning. Cotaldi, you know, he's a little wacky. He does good stuff in the morning, he's, but it's sports-oriented. You did the sports in the morning for all those stations for you and Golik forever. So from that standpoint, uh, I think FAN proved that you can have a message done by only delivering to half of the audience. You know, first off, that half's going to spend money. They're going to buy uh, advertising. They're going to buy cars. They're going to drink beer. So it's not the worst thing if you know that your audience is men and they're hopefully between 18 and 54 or 18 and 49. And that's what FAN accomplished. And they got the right personnel there to get that message across. And fortunately, Mike and I were at the right place at the right time. Franklin left. He had a contract issue. I'm 29. Mike is 34. The station had already been around for two years. Hey, you know what? Mike might be too encyclopedic. Russo might be too nutty by himself. Let's try it together and see if they can be successful. And lo and behold, we were. were. Thank God. Perfect storm, Mike. We hit hit it at the right time. And then you throw in the 90 sports in New York. Yankees at the end of the decade. Knicks and Rangers at the beginning of the decade. Second year we started, Giants won a Super Bowl. That helps, too. That helps, too. No question. Chris Russo with me here. Okay, so we have started sort of at the end. Let's go back to the beginning because your passion for sports is something that I think is the primary reason that people enjoy listening to you. So what is your first sports memory from your childhood? What's the first, first thing you remember about loving sports? Well, that's a good one. Uh, I'm probably going to say the Packers of 67. Hmm. Um, I was, I was uh, seven going on eight. I remember uh, the ice bowl very, very well. And I also remember a game at the end of the year. They played a game in L.A. against the Rams. They lost on a block punt. And I threw things all over the house and annoyed that my team had lost. Hmm. Now, as it turned out, if you go back and look, that's a meaningless game. Packers had already clinched their division. They were in the playoffs. They lost 27-24, maybe 24-21. Block punt. I, got, I went nuts. And my parents, to punish me, would not allow me to watch the Packers the next time they were on TV. Hmm. Lo and behold, they next were on TV. Two weeks later, they played Pittsburgh in their last game, lost. Then they were on TV against the Rams in a playoff game, and they beat them 28-7 in Milwaukee. I was not able to watch it. But I was able to watch the Ice Bowl, which was on New Year's Eve of 67, going into 68. Uh, I was eight at that time. And they beat the Cowboys, of course, 21-17. And I remember that team pretty well. So if you ask me where it all began for me from a sports perspective, I get glimpses of other things. I remember Gibson against the Red Sox in 67. But that one with the Packers against the, um, against the Cowboys – and the Ice Bowl of 67, I remember very, very well. And I also remember my parents all upset at me for screaming and yelling about a nothing game with the Rams. Didn't mean much. I was too young to understand that aspect of a meaningless game in December. And that probably is the first big memory I have of sports uh, at that point. That's a famous game. It's one of the most famous games in the history of the NFL. So that one would be number one. Giant baseball would be next, and that would be in 68. Bonds broke in. Barry's father, Bobby, and he played 81 games that year. 
The 68 Giants were good. They finished in second place to the Cardinals. They finished about six out, but a good team. Mays, McCovey, Marischal. Again, Bonds played 81 games. I remember that team, too. So right around that period, Mike, for me, those two teams became my favorites. Green Bay the year before, 67. Lombardi's last, and the Giants the following year in 68. And and I'm sure a lot of people have not ever heard any explanation of this, but you you grew up on Long Island, right? I grew up in Syosso, Long Island, so... You know, I didn't like the New York teams, which is funny. I hated all the New York teams, me being a contrarian. So, but I, I, I remember the 69 Mets well. I certainly remember the Knicks beating the Lakers in May of 70. Uh, you know, I remember the Rangers were good in the early 70s, losing to the Blackhawks and the Bruins and the Cup Final that one year to Boston. I remember all those teams. Uh, but the two that I seemed to latch on to were those two teams. One addendum in 68. Uh, I, my father was a jewelry salesman and we had a, he used to have a couple of big jewelry shows a year and he did one in February and one in the summer. That summer of 68, the giant, the jewelry show for my father was in Philadelphia. So he took my mother and I, I'm the only child, down to Philly and we stayed at the Hilton in Philly. Lo, I was in August. Lo and behold, the giants were staying there as well for a series against the Phillies. Mm. I got all the Giants autographs, lobby, running around with a little pad and pencil, except for Willie Mays, who wouldn't sign. And that seemed to have a lot of scenarios, too, with me being a big Giant fan. August of 68, I've gone back and looked. Giants made a trip into Philly. They played at old Frank, um, you know, at Connie Mack Stadium in those days before the vet. And obviously uh, got all the Giant autographs. And a young kid like that running around getting... Bill Mumble, Kent, Mike McCormick, who just passed away, one of Cy Young, Gaylord, Perry, McCovey, getting all their autographs around the hotel lobby, that's going to that's gonna hit home to a young kid. So that has something to do with my giant love as well. That's phenomenal. That I, I just can't imagine, because I'm a little younger than you are, but I also am from New York, and I just can't imagine growing up. Did you go to games because... You know, my father took me to a lot of games, and I can't imagine going to games and not having those be having become my teams. Like my, the first memory I have when I when people ask me that question, I remember what the what the garden smelled like when I was a little kid. People would be smoking cigars, and there was it was just such a totally different vibe. But I, I, you know, my father would take me to Nick games, Yankee games, and Jet games, and I just can't imagine those not having become my teams. Did you go to games as a kid? Yeah, I sure did. You know, my father was not a basketball or hockey fan. Mm-hmm. He loved the Yankees. So the games that I would go to would be uh, the Yankees scenario with um, uh, up at old Yankee Stadium and, of course, the Mets. And the Mets in the early 70s were worth going to. They had Seaver. You know, they won the championship in 69. I was at one of those Cardinal games at the end of the year, not when they clinched, but in that series. I remember that. We sat down the right field line. And there was a bunch of drunken Met fans right next to us. Um, <laughs> I do remember that. I also had a good buddy of mine who was a season ticket holder of the Giants and the, um, and the Jets, believe it or not. And I went to a lot of Giant games up at old Yankee Stadium in the early 70s. And, and you know, but, uh, even before that. And I remember one game that I went to, they beat the Eagles. And I have my little facts and figures book right here. And I'm going to tell you what year it was. I think the final was 62-10, to 10, and the Giants beat the Eagles. And I'm going to tell you, I was at the game, and that game, I have it right here. I'm going to give you the exact date. They beat the Eagles in 1972, 62-10, to 10, 
at Yankee Stadium. I was 12. I was at the game. OJ's game, when he broke the rushing record, 2,000 yards, when he hit the 2,000-yard rushing record at Shea in the snow, I was at that game. So I went to those games, too, but my father was not a big football fan. So most of the games that I would go to would be Yankee games at the old stadium, and the Yankees were bad in the early 70s, and the Mets games. Those are the two games. Those are the two sports I see. Knicks and Rangers I did not go to, so you were fortunate because the Knicks were a huge story in those days, huge. So you had a chance to go to those. I did not go to the Garden nearly as much as I went to Yankee Stadium and, of course, Shea. I did, however, miss the really good years for the Knicks. As I say, I'm younger than you are, so I, I did not see the Willis Reed, Bill Bradley, Dave DeBusher, Walt Frazier Knicks. I grew up with the Toby Knight, Larry Demick, Glenn Gondrazik, Ray Williams <laughs> Knicks. <Yeah. laughs> they, got good. they got good when they got Bernard King in the early 80s. The first Knicks teams that I remember that were good were the Hubie Brown coached Knicks. Those were, yeah. the, those were the teams I fell in love with. 100%, Mike. You are, you're, you're not a little younger than me. You're, what are you about? You 50 yet? Uh, you're 53. 53. 53. So you're, you're eight years younger. So that, uh, those eight years is huge. Uh, I mean, you're born in 19, what, 67? 67. Something along those lines? 67. So, uh, yeah, so, so when you're starting to watch the Knicks and getting into it, it's the late 70s, early 80s. And I'm, you know, I'm in college at that point, so those teams uh, hit home to me. I, I, I go, uh, you know, probably about nine or ten years earlier. I remember the Lakers and the Knicks. I love the Lakers because of Jerry West. So I remember the 69-70 series very well. And I remember Game 7. Remember, Game 7 was blacked out in New York. This is May of 70. That game was blacked out in New York. That game was not on. And I remember we lived out in Long Island, Syosset. And we were fortunate, and we figured out a way with the antenna to get Channel 8 up in New, ha- up in New Haven. Because it was more than the 50 miles away from the Garden. And we watched the Knicks and the Lakers in that seventh game via UHF with the rabbit antenna. And I was all upset because the Knicks killed them that night. It was only a 113-99 final, but they killed them that night. And they just had an anniversary showing of that game this past May. But I remember that team pretty well. And I remember the fact that the Knicks lost the Lakers a couple of years later when the Lakers and West finally won their championship. So I remember all those great New York teams. You know, the Mets win, the, uh, the, the Jets with Namath win, and, of course, uh, you know, the Knicks, um, the Mets, Knicks, and, uh, and Jets all won. They all beat Baltimore, uh, Baltimore teams in that same period. I remember those teams fairly well. Not, in, not, not incredible. I'm 8, 9, 10 years old, but fairly well. So you were about a little late. You're a generation after me when the teams weren't so good. So it may not be as indelible as it would have been to me. But here's the thing that I just find, and I, I want to try and do a psychological evaluation of it. That you were growing up in, in New York, in the New York area on Long Island at a time right. when the Knicks were winning a championship, the Mets were yeah. winning the World Series, and, and the Jets were winning the championship. And you're telling me that you were rooting against the Knicks and you were rooting against the Mets and you were rooting against you were rooting against all the New York teams. What where does that, that come from? How does that happen? I remember I rooted for the Reds hard in 73 when the Mets beat him in the five-game series, three games to two, and Rose had that fight with Buddy Harrelson. 69, I was only nine. I don't remember me going crazy about rooting for the Orioles when the Mets beat him in five games. But the Knicks, absolutely. I was a big Chicago Blackhawk fan. They beat the Rangers one year in seven games. I remember that series very well. I rooted hard for Chicago. They won 3-2 in game seven. At old Chicago Stadium, I rooted hard there. I, the Giants are bad, so I don't have to worry about them so much. Um, Namath, I, everybody loved Namath, 
Uh, I didn't have this fascination with the Colts, but I like Green Bay. So, I mean, and the Packers after 67 and Lombardi left were not that good. So I probably didn't pay as much attention to the Jets as I probably would have if I didn't have the Packers who had won a Super Bowl a year before. You're right. And in a lot of ways, Mike, if you follow my radio career at FAN, I never rooted for the New York teams. I've always hated the Yankees. Uh, and so it's weird that I was on radio in New York for such a long period of time. And I did that rooting for the San Francisco Giants. Mm-hmm. And even now that I've been out of FAN for over a decade, 12 years, if you ask, when I run into fans who don't listen to me on Sirius, and, you know, who kind of have forgotten about me, and I run into those fans, you know what the first thing they ask me? Oh, congratulations on the Giants winning three championships. <laughs> I mean, they know me more with the Giants from FAN than they know me anything else, which is odd. And I've kind of lost a little of my giant passion in the last 10 years because they won three times. But back in the FAN days, that's all I cared about. And I never did root. You're 100% right. I never rooted that hard for any of the New York teams. And so if I go back and look at it, it is pretty weird and amazing that I was on New York radio on a number one station for 19 years and never really had any interest in rooting for the New York teams, unlike Mike, who was a huge, as you know, a huge Yankee fan. Mm -hmm. Loved 96 when they beat Atlanta. And a huge Giants football fan. Right. Love Parcells when they beat the Bills in 90. I was at that Super Bowl. I would have for Buffalo. I mean, so it's, <laughs> it's fascinating that I was able to be successful for such a long period of time in New York and not root for the New York teams. I, I, and, and I didn't hide it. Everybody knew I didn't root for the New York teams. But for whatever the reason, you know, they accepted me, which I have to give them credit for. I really yeah, well, I, I think it actually was effective because – Everyone else is rooting for the teams, and so you've got a little different perspective and a little bit of needling and all that kind of stuff. Good point. Okay, so, so Good point. Yeah. let's go through a couple other things here. So of all the years that you were covering sports in New York, and then, and then we'll get to when you go to Sirius, but of all the years you're covering sports in New York, I have to believe that the most, the craziest time, or what, craziest or, or busiest or most exciting time would have been that stretch in June of 94. Um, when the Knicks and the Rangers both made it to the finals, both went to seven games, and basically in New York it felt like every single day there was a championship game for the span of of a very long period of time. What do you remember about being the preeminent sports voices there? 100%. That is it. That also was very important for Mike and me. We had great ratings of that spring book. We shouldn't have been in hindsight. We actually were in the Ranger parade uh, down a canyon of heroes, which we should never have been. Uh, for some reason, FAN had a float. They they put Mike and Mike on a float. Me, Howie, and Mike on the float. Howie Rose. Uh, but that is the time. I went to 25 games uh, at the Garden, and I probably went to about uh, Mike and I did shows 18 or 20 on the road. And I was in Vancouver, Houston, Indiana, Knicks and Rockets, Knicks Pacers, Rangers Canucks. Uh, you know, I certainly went to the Rangers Devil Series. That was a classic seven-game series. Uh, yeah, very much so. That was very, very important. I, I think the best one I can tell you is this. Uh, Mike and I flew to Indiana on a Friday morning, I think it was, in uh, 94. That was game six. Knicks showed three games to two. Uh, and we flew out there, and the Knicks won a close game six. Riley was the head coach. Riley used to come on every Friday, every game, playoffs at 5.05, game day included. That's how much Raleigh enjoyed the passion of the New York sports fan and always used to come on, even on game days. But we were in Indiana for game, for game six. Knicks win. Derek Harper had a big game. We did the show uh, from Market Square Arena 
Uh, I don't remember, probably press, press, you know, running a press beat. In those days, you could do the show right from the uh, press, uh, press uh, from the press row. Mike, we did a post game, post game, Knicks win. I had Derek Harper. We had Derek Harper on. Mike flew back to New York to make sure he had the Knicks covered for Game Seven against Indiana. I got on a plane the next morning, flew from Indiana, Indianapolis to Chicago, changed on an American. Flew to Vancouver, got to the old Pacific Coliseum in a neighborhood, ran into the arena, had my credential, ran up to the press box level, and the uh, broadcast booth was right above center ice, like a little walkway to get there. You almost got uh, scared, afraid of heights. It was weird. I got to the booth. I was on the air at 3 o'clock. Rangers began at 4. Remember, three-hour time difference because they played game three that night at 7 o'clock. And we're, I did the show an hour pregame and then postgame, Rangers-Canucks. Hmm. How about that? Yeah, That's it's... pretty good. Phenomenal. And then in game six, the Rangers lost game five at home to Vancouver. We flew the next morning to Vancouver through Toronto, did a show. Rangers lose game six, and the next day, or that night, flew back to Houston for a Nick Lockett series, a game that they had against Houston, game two, and then back to New York to see the Rangers win the Cup. We did a lot of traveling, but I love that. You'd love that. You know, you're right in the center of it. I'm young. I'm five years into Mike and the Mad Dog, but you're 100% right. That Indiana, that Nick run, got to game seven of the NBA final. And that Ranger Cup, which was huge, all those tough series, Devils and Vancouver, two game sevens, that was the highlight of Mike and the Mad Dog, and very important to their early days and early success. No question about it. I remember it. I remember it vividly. So then let's fast forward a little bit here. You start the channel at Sirius, and you take the right. talk show national, which is, of course, right. my area. That's, that's what I know a lot more about. I started out local in Chicago, but but anyone who knows me, they know me because I did, as you mentioned, Mike and Mike for all those years, the national show, and I do the national TV now and the national radio show. So in your view, as one who has done both now at the very highest levels, what are the biggest differences between doing a really good radio show nationally versus doing a really good radio show locally? Well, I'll give you one positive, one negative uh, from a national standpoint. The negative on a national standpoint is you don't have a hometown team. So you don't have a situation where you can dive in to a home team's loss. You know, uh, the Mets or the Yankees lose a crucial game. The Giants lose a crucial game. The Jets lose a terrible game. Bad coaching. They blow a lead. Or if they win, they win a title. You don't have that to fall back on. You know, people in Walla Walla, you know, they're not wrapped up on the New York Mets. (laughs) <laughs> so if the Mets get swept in a September series against the Braves and get knocked out, they're not that wrapped up on it. So I can't get three or four hours on that. Meanwhile, if you're on WFN in New York and the Mets or the Yankees or the Giants or the Jets or the Jets fire head coaches as they did forever, you know, whether it's Rich Kotite or Pete Carroll or Bruce Coslett, you can do days on that subject. You never really have to worry about generating anything on the air. There are times on national radio, especially by yourself. Remember, you had Mike, so they, you had an advantage there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are days on national radio where you miss that, that hometown team scenario. So, that, so that's the first thing. That's the negative that I would say about national. The positive is 
is you have great flexibility. You, you know, you don't have to get yourself uh, uh, zeroed in on why Aaron Boone pinch hit in the bottom of the eighth inning 2-2 in August in a game mm-hmm. against the Blue Jays. It's not that important. While in FAN, you sort of, you know, you get into the minutiae of that game and it takes forever. You know, you're spending three days on a dopey game in August. But in the big picture, doesn't mean a whole hell of a lot. Uh, while, in New York, while if you do a national, you, you can mention it, but you can get off it pretty quick. So the flexibility of a national show where you can sort of pick your spots and, you know, you know, it's like having a big menu. You can pick a little something of this, a little something of that. I'll have a little of this. Let me have a little of that. You could do that in a national brand, which is very, very good. So you enjoy that from a talk radio standpoint. I don't know if I would have liked doing it when I just started. I think that I did local radio for so long and then learned, got a little tired of it, you know, trading deadlines, who the Knicks going to get. You know, it gets old after a while. And going into the national thing, we don't have to do as much of that nonsense, that minutiae. I think I enjoy that more. So the flexibility, and you know better than anybody, that you can pick and choose. You know, you can cherry pick. That is very, very, that's fun. Now, the thing you've got to be careful of, I rely on calls more than, say, than you and uh, Mike did. So, I mean, I'm by myself there four or five hours sometimes a day, so i got to make sure I get a cord where the national audience cares. So i, I got to find that. So sometimes that can be a little tricky. But I think all in all, the challenge of national radio is, is, is more enjoyable than local radio, to be honest with you, more enjoyable. It's a really good description of it. I agree. The, the job is having your finger on the pulse of what the largest possible number of people are going to be interested in. That, that's right. that's, what, that's why, the way I've always described it. Okay, one more thing that I want to ask you. This is something I've always wanted to ask you because I listened to you on the radio for a long time before I ever met you. And now, you know, you and I have uh, encountered each other on numerous occasions. And what I've always observed about you, be it in work situations or even in personal ones, because our, our sons both played basketball in the same area at the same time, so I would see you sometimes with that, is that you're the friendliest person in the world. You are so friendly with everybody, whether you know them or not. And yet you will say anything on the radio. You, 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 I have heard you crucify people that I know you have to encounter. So I, I would ask you, are you naturally a confrontational person? Are you comfortable? No, definitely not. You are not. No, so no. how do you handle it when you see people that you have crucified? I try to avoid them as much as I can. Uh, I do think there is an element of that. I mean, Mike Milbury is a good example. Uh, you know, he got on Mike Milbury a lot when he was the Islander general manager. He fired Lavalette one year that bothered me. And I, the famous one is, Mike, how will you still have a job as a general manager, which put him in a tough spot. And then three years ago, coming back from Minnesota uh, at the Super Bowl, on a Friday night, lo and behold, who's at the airport with me for in about three hours is Mike Milbury. Mike, Mike Milbury. <laughs> So there are there, there there are certain scenarios where you you know you are going to annoy people, and you hope they don't take it too personally, uh, and, and you don't. I tell you one thing I do when I do kind of counter somebody out in the open, and I've been knocking him on the air. I don't bring it up. You know, uh, I, I, I always when I see somebody out in open on a weekend, and I knock them for something. Either I try to avoid them or I don't ever bring anything up that would be viewed as confrontational. What stays on the radio is like the old light line of Vegas. What, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What, mm-hmm. what, happen, what I say on the radio stays on the radio. 
And if it goes off the radio and I run into him off the air, and I run into him whether it's in New York City, at a game, at an event, uh, I try to, uh, you know, stay away from getting involved in a verbal confrontation as best I can. Now, I've had a couple of them, so it's not like it's every day. And if I have a couple of them where I know somebody's really annoyed at me, you have to give them the opportunity to vent. So if you've killed somebody, whoever that might be, I'll think of an example in a second. If you've killed somebody, whoever that might be, and he hasn't had a chance to get back at you, and you run into him at an arena, at, a, at the grocery store, whatever the case might be, you have to allow him to get on you for five minutes. You can't sit there and fight him. This is his chance. You killed him on radio now. You've got to give him a chance to get on you a little bit that he's run into you off the air. And so the two or three times or the five or six times that has occurred, I try to allow that to happen because it's got to only be fair. I can't kill him and then not give him a chance to get on me when he runs into me. You know, I'm trying to give you an example. Dave Checkets, I used to get on a little bit. He lives in my town. So if I see Checkets occasionally, i got to give him a chance to fight me, fight me off a little bit. There's one example. Bobby Valentine would be another. You know, there's been a couple of times where, you know, he, Bobby was the manager of the Mets and, you know, we always used to get on him a little bit, so he get me. You know, he lives in Stanford, mm-hmm. so you know you're going to run into him. So uh, there, there are a couple of those examples where you have to allow that person to to get it off his to get it off his chest. And but you're right, Mike. When you see me in in public, you you know you have to be the same person that the average fan's going to think of you on the air. So if you're having a bad day and you're annoyed and you're cranky, that's the day not to go out. <laughs> when, you go, when you go out and you go to a, uh, an AU basketball game or you go to a golf event or, you know, you go run around town, you have to acknowledge the fan who sees you because that fan wants to see the same Chris Russo that he listens to. So it doesn't have to be 20 minutes, but hello, how you doing? a quick acknowledgement that his opinion counts, 20 seconds, Chris, who's going to win? Don't run away and hide. Sit there and give him an answer. That's not going to kill you to do that. So I try to take that into account when I'm in those situations. And then when I run into somebody that I know might be mad at me, give him a chance to yell at you. It's not the end of the world. That's how I do it. One more thing before I let you go. I want to get a little bit of baseball into the conversation. The the the, the, the the issue of analytics became the overwhelming topic coming out of this year's World Series. And as America's foremost baseball lover yourself, I just would like to hear, and I think everyone listening would like to hear your perspective on the role that analytics is playing in the game right now, what you think it's doing to the game, and, and where you would like to see it go. Well, I think it's hurt the entertainment aspect of the game. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that with millions of relief pitchers uh, coming into these games, we obviously we saw it in Game Six against the Dodgers with Matt with Blake Snell. Uh, that's hurt the game an awful lot. The specialization of the sport has lengthened the game, has made the game much more tedious, and made stars of anonymous relievers who none of us can pick out of a lineup. Think about it for a second. Uh, LeBron plays the last ten minutes of a fourth quarter of a big playoff game. Tiger plays the back nine of the Masters. Federer and Nadal play the fifth set at Wimbledon. Brady directs a two-minute offense in the fourth quarter. The big pitcher is out of the game. I mean, he doesn't pitch the last three or four innings. Kershaw's out after six innings. So you never see the great hurler go out there and dig deep 
to get out of a, a precarious situation because he's not allowed to do that. And that's a form of theater that we no longer have in baseball, and I think much to the negative. So that's one aspect of the sport that I think needs uh, – I don't know how they're going to fix it, but that drives you crazy. The problem that you have with baseball right now is you've got too many kids, and I've been saying this on the air for months, so if you haven't heard me, I'll explain it. You've got too many kids who are 24 years of age – right off the you know, UCLA campus who wear the Bruins sweatshirt on the way to Dodger Stadium uh, with, uh, you know, they're, you know, with just gotten out of a shower with a Schwinn bike going to Dodger Stadium, pouring over last night's data. I didn't see the game, but pouring over last night's data and statistics to determine how to play the game tonight. Mm. And, and, and that is a, you know, that's a problem. Uh, there's not enough hunch play in the sport right now. And I think that has been a major, major detriment, not only the fact, you know, that baseball is a slow game. We're living in a generation where they want immediacy, while baseball is a slow, cerebral, methodical game. It's a subtlety game. You've got to watch it. You've got to kind of understand what the manager's up to. You've got to follow along. Most people don't want to do that now. My kid doesn't want to do that. He wants to follow the sport on his phone and look at the highlights, and he wants to watch the red zone on football, and he wants to play his fantasy, and he wants to watch the last five minutes of an NBA playoff game, and you know he wants to watch the NCAA tournament and go from one conclusion to the other. He doesn't want to sit there for four hours and 25 minutes watching a ball game and that doesn't end at 1 o'clock in the morning. And that's where baseball, I think, has hurt itself an awful lot. Uh, and I, th- I don't know how they fix it. Uh, they've let the cat out of the bag. So that is one negative of the sport uh, that is disturbing. Now, when you get the great game, like you got in game four, Tampa and the Dodgers with that, fin- that crazy finish, despite the fact it took four hours and 20 minutes to play, when you got that great game, there's nothing like it. But you've got to get more than one game in a season or four or five games in a season that have that kind of drama to sustain an audience. So I think baseball from a television perspective, has got some issues. And we've seen it all the time with the ratings. And I think the analytical aspect, I can understand why they do it, but it's a problem. The GMs run the team right now, Mike. The managers don't make the calls anymore. They do what the GM tells them to do. And they only get paid seven, dollars $800,000 a year to do it. These guys don't get paid like they did in the year. You know, Joe Torrey made $7, $8 million a year from the Yankees year after year. Now, they won championships. Boone's making a million dollars a year. Making a million, two, million, three to make, the, to make that kind of money. So the GM makes that decision of, of who should pitch game two against Tampa. And that's why they go to Garcia there and, and then they go to that J-Hap out of the bullpen. I think it's a negative. I, I think it's caused the sport some, some major trouble. Uh, and I don't know how they fix it, but I, I do think it's caused the tr- sport some trouble. I really do. I see it the same way. Listen, I need to let you go because you're a busy person. And, but I just want to tell you, I, I, I know I have said this to you in the past, but I want to say it here that I have um, – uh, you mentioned it, you know, Mike and Mike was, was the best thing that ever happened to me in my life, professionally speaking, and it definitely never happens to me if it weren't for the, the, you know, the trail that you and Mike blazed. And so I wanted to say thank you again for that and for everything and for being terrific here and continued success and good health. And I hope to see you soon. Thank you very much for Since doing Mike this. Mike, you did a great job as usual. Let me talk there. Superb. Keep up the good work, pal. Appreciate, appreciate you having me today. All right, and so that's my conversation with Chris, the Mad Dog Russo. My thanks to Chris. Uh, it was a pleasure chatting with him. He's someone I've gotten to know a little bit over the years, and he's just a very nice guy, very friendly, 
Um, and I think that a lot of that sort of shined through in that conversation. So I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And again, I'll remind you, if you would like to see us continue this podcast for another season, if you like these long-form interviews, then please subscribe to this podcast. I'm interested. Leave us a rating and a review, letting us know that you want to see us continue. Because if you want to continue to hear them, I promise you we'll continue to do them. So that's it. I greatly appreciate you spending this time with me. I will see you next week. I'm interested. And my name is Mike Greenberg.